Welcome to IOL Radio, the podcast for IO learning, a digital publication that covers the latest advancements in interventional oncology. This podcast episode is part of the SIO Corner, a collaboration between IO Learning and the Society of Interventional Oncology. Today's podcast features Dr. A.J. Gunn, SIO Publications Committee Vice Chair, and his guest, Dr. Christopher Malone, Assistant Professor of Radiology in the Interventional Radiology Section within Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology at Washington University School of Medicine. They will discuss Dr. Malone's award-winning abstract from SIO 2023, the process of actualizing this study, and what to expect from Dr. Malone and his colleagues at SIO 2024. We're really excited, uh, you know, for this podcast to uh, welcome Dr. Chris Malone from Washington University in St. Louis to discuss his award-winning abstract from the uh, SIO annual meeting in 2023. But before we get going, talking about your abstract, Chris, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little about yourself and your practice? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really an honor to be on here. So my name is Chris Malone. I am an interventional radiologist at WashU St. Louis. I've been here for almost five years. It's an academic practice as you might assume we're a very large uh, transplant center. There's about 15 or 16 IR attendings. So there's a good opportunity for people to kind of subspecialize in their areas of interest. A lot of what I focus on is liver cancer, treatment of liver cancer, specifically HCC. Prior to WashU St. Louis, I did my fellowship at University of Washington uh, in Seattle, which was a, um, also a busy Y90 HCC program. And prior to that, I did my residency at University of California, San Diego. So yeah, I've kind of been all over the place. Yeah, a little bit. So mid Midwest from uh, from two places on the West Coast. So before we get started talking about your abstract, you know, this was in the basic sciences, you know, preclinical section for the abstract. So it was, it was essentially a translational science paper. You know, not a lot of IRs are doing translational research. So where did you first get your interest in trans in translational research? Yeah, so that's a great, great point. So it's kind of multi-pronged. So I have a pretty extensive background in in doing um, sort of bench to bedside translational research um, okay. prior to my IR career. I was in the T32 uh, research residency track at UCSD uh, doing molecular imaging research. And as I gravitated towards IR, I kind of began to, to realize that as innovative of a specialty that we are, we still haven't answered a lot of fundamental questions about what our therapies do yeah, on absolutely. a preclinical kind of basic science level. And I think while we do constantly innovate, I think our impact could be a lot more by understanding that. And I think a lot of other fields are really good at that. And I think they've reaped the gains from it, like medical oncology, radiation oncology, yeah. have a good fundamental understanding. And that, that's kind of my motivation. And I think it's also, it's very rewarding. I think if you're able to make a sort of bench to bedside observation or translation or, or some sort of discovery. Um, so that's kind of my main, you know, interest or motivation. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, to me, I, I totally agree with you. I, I always think about with interventional radiology, I, I kind of use the term that we get distracted by new toys, you know? Yeah, and absolutely. so, it, you know, instead of driving down 
as, you know, medical oncology, you'll have a therapy and they have this network of hospitals to run a trial. And, you know, in six months, then they'll have, you know, 3000 patients were in this trial, you know, and, you know, and what we end up getting distracted is, Hey, let's, we found out about prostate artery embolization. And, and then, you know, instead of, and obviously they've done a nice job in that space, but just as an example, then instead of really drilling down, why does it work and, and comparing it to standard of care, surgical therapies, we get distracted by, oh, the first 50 patients with hundred micron beads, the first 50 patients yeah. with 30 micron beads, Absolutely. you know, those are just easier <laughs> publications to put out. So I think, the road that you've chosen is like hugely impactful, you know, for our specialty. And so I, I really applaud you for that. I, I just want to ask you a little bit about the T32 program for people that are trainees or, you know, medical students that are listening in, in, in interventional radiology. So what is a T32 program? Do you think that that's essential for someone who's wants to kind of get into interventional radiology research or what are the upsides and downsides? Could you talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. So uh, a T32 is basically just the name of a type of NIH training grant. And so, I mean, you could technically have a research track residency without it, but most places that do have it do, and that's how it's financially supported. Sure. I, I wouldn't say that you have to do that kind of track but, uh, you know, I was, I didn't have a PhD. So I was, you know, more yeah. interested, I, I was interested in getting that extra research training. You know, there aren't too many places that offer uh, T32s in, in radiology or, or let yeah. alone, you know, interventional radiology, but, you know, they're out there. UCSD where I trained is obviously one um, here at WashU. We have one. I, I think, I don't want to speak for other institutions, but there may be at least <laughs> three or four other ones out yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And so what it does, it basically gives, it carves out time during your residency for you to, to do actual dedicated, You usually it's translational bench research. So cool. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of that, you, you understand kind of how the research game works, uh -huh. collaborate with people, which I think is most of the recipe for success. Yeah. No, I mean, there's just so many things, even in, in, in failures, like with research that you just learn along the way yeah. and, and, you know, how to write things and how to put things together. And, and it's just, you know, there's a whole language to, to writing grants and things like that, that is, is, um, difficult to unlock. I would say if you don't, <laughs> if you don't have experience in that sense. So do you have a lab, do you have lab space now at, at Wash U? And if so, how did you get that set up? Was that part of the package for you to go there? Was that something that you negotiated when you started? Great question. So I do have lab space. My pathway to getting lab space was admittedly a little circuitous and unique, but I'll, I'll try to take a stab at it. So sure. I I was I was given a little bit of resources to to do you know research coming in to wash you, um, but what really kind of set it off was I was introduced to one of the big scientist here, his name was Sam Achillifu. He has since gone on to UT Southwestern, but he he operated a pretty big lab within radiology. And he uh -huh. was, he is, not was, is, he's a chemist that specializes in optical probes to diagnose and treat cancer amongst other diseases. And so I initially um, had some sit downs with him and wow. he was telling me about some of his early work with radiopharmaceuticals 
And I really saw an opportunity how I could take that work and apply it to Y90 specifically and sort of tie it with, you know, my current practice of treating sure. And so he was gracious enough to actually give me a, a small little office in his lab. Yeah. And so <laughs> I had enough resources to hire uh, a research tech. Uh And with some, you know, some hard work and, you know, there was some collaboration with other people in this lab, we were able to get some preliminary data. And then I was able to use that to apply for other grants, like especially through RSNA um, and SIR. And with that support, I was kind of able to carve out a little bit more of a footprint within the lab. He has since left. And so some of the leadership has changed a little bit within that um, research center. But through that, I was able to kind of be like, okay, like this is going to be, you know, my area, but there is the, the, the expectation for you to ultimately get NIH level funding. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, that could be a whole other podcast in and of itself. And that's kind of what we're working on right now (laughs) to to secure, (laughs) which is no, no easy tasks by any means, but you know, it's, it's a interesting journey. Yeah. And honestly, you know, you've made it compared to where most people get, you've made it so far down the road already, you know, in just, you know, a few short years. And so I, I think that's, it's totally interesting. And, and, and I think, as you know, it's just, it's a, it's a difficult road to travel. And I think the fact that you were able so fortuitous to find someone that had experience and provide you mentorship. And I really think, you know, mm-hmm. inside institutions, things like that's super key for people, especially early on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's critical. Um, so yeah. I, if I'm, I consider myself to be very lucky. Now, the whole like startup package thing, I mean, that's that's a whole other topic to discuss. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not asking you to reveal like, you know, internal negotiations. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, <laughs> that's, very, that's a unique conversation. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's talk about your abstract from the annual meeting, uh, 2023. I'm sure you had many, but this one in the basic science categories. And for, the, for everybody that's listening, Chris and his team actually had the highest scored abstract in the basic science categories. So why don't you go ahead and just give us the background on the pod, uh, on the project and, and where did you get the idea to, to start with this research project? Sure, absolutely. So some of the work that I was doing when Sam was still in the lab, we were basically doing in vitro experiments with Y90 microspheres in different HCC cancer cell lines. So basically what that is, these are immortalized cancer cell lines, usually derived from patients decades prior that are kind of handed around worldwide. And we're basically seeing very different responses or behavior, biological behavior to Y90 between two different cell lines. And, and these two different cell lines were kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their, I guess, for lack of a better word, malignant potential. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, huh, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I started looking into this more and it's like, well, you know, HCC is a very diverse disease. It's very genetically uh, heterogeneous. And by that, it means that different HCCs can express different proteins. They can express different RNA levels. They can express different, I guess, biology. Uh-huh. So when I'm looking back at tumor board and I'm thinking, and then I see the patient that responded really well to Y90, 
And then the other one that just didn't, uh-huh. we always talk about like, oh, well, that patient has bad biology. But like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Or it's the so dosing, I, right? Or it's the first Y90. It's the dosing wasn't hot enough, right? Yeah, so, exactly. But, you know, I've seen patients that respond great to a lower dose and those yeah. that you blast them and, and they, they have, you know, a, a either slightly out of field or infield progression. And so that kind of motivated me because it was a, it was a, a bedside observation that yeah. I also saw in the lab. Uh-huh. And so I was kind of basically another kind of fortunate in meeting that I had. So as Sam was leaving, I met another now um, current mentor of mine. Uh, his name is uh, Nick Davidson, and he's actually the chief of uh, GI here at WashU. And he's fantastic. And he has a preclinical interest in HCC. And we were talking about these issues and talking about basic animal models of HCC and how one of my pitfalls was, how can I find something that is good that I can do liver-directed therapy on in an animal that is larger than a mouse because a mouse is incredibly difficult to catheterize. I don't know if anyone's really tried it. But, but smaller than smaller than a rabbit or a pig, because those models aren't very, I think, well established, and they're large and they're expensive. And he's like, "Well, you know, the rats is not that great." And we can go on to the the nuances of that. And then he brought up the topic of patient derived tumoroids, and so uh-huh. tumoroids are basically tumor versions of organoids. And what organoids are is that these basically these um, uh, patient-derived models that basically recapitulate the original organ or tumor, basically okay. on a level, so in a dish. And so there's been a lot of prior work um, done on liver organoids or hepanoids, where you basically take patient liver tissue and then you can grow it um, in a dish under very specialized media. And you can see these little tiny, like organs kind of grow and you can do a lot of like functional characterization on them, but you also do it with tumors and that's okay. attractive because they replicate the histological morphology of the original tumor. They replicate the genetic profile of the original tumor, all while you have concurrent clinical data from the patient. Uh-huh. And so you can do a lot of things with these tumoroids. You can put them in an animal, you can make um, patient-derived xenografts, or you can just do basic fundamental experiments um, in the lab. You can treat them with Y90 microspheres. You can see how they respond. Um, you can treat them with uh, heat to simulate ablation. And so I thought that was a very attractive model to, to pursue. And one of the things that it really uh, shores up on compared to cell culture data, cell culture work, is that you have the concurrent clinical data, as I just mentioned. And so I know, you know, how this patient was staged. I know if they have gone concurrent Y90 clinically, how did they do? Did they have a response? Was there a short-term recurrence? And I can correlate that with what I'm seeing in the lab. The problem with cell culture work is that oftentimes the information on where that 
the patient that where that came from is long lost. You know, it's decades yeah. old. A lot of cell culture, uh, the HCC cell, cell lines are from um, hepatitis B derived samples from um, from Asia. Uh-huh. And so we argue that there may not be, you know, certain biological relevances um, compared to our cohort that we see here in the West. And so, yeah, go on. But, yeah, no, 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 go ahead, finish. And so that that's kind of the main main motivation to start doing this project is to tr- see if we can generate these patient-derived tumors in a dish, essentially. Yeah. So tell me, like, help me understand a little bit better then, and, and, and the listeners too, <laughs> help me understand a little bit better about how did you do this, right? I mean, yeah. I, conceptually, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I'm not saying I know how to do it, but conceptually what you're saying makes sense. But like, where where did you get the samples from? Was it all biopsy samples or, or where did you get the samples from and how did you, how did you make the tumoroids? Yeah. So- Great question. So we got the samples from basically any patient. And this required where I was basically scoping the board for like a week or two out. Yeah. Any patient that was going to get a standard of care biopsy, Uh DC was on the differential. The issue with that is, you know, we don't biopsy HCC. Yeah. Not that often. Exactly. And, And so you really had to kind of work hard to find these patients, but they're there. And then also we've done a couple where we'll biopsy before we do like a Y90 mapping. If um, we want to cinch the diagnosis of HCC. Sure. Especially yeah. if they, their liver may not look too cirrhotic mm-hmm. nodular, and they don't have a history of hepatitis C. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of those patients, I think they usually have some sort of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease component to it. Still from an IRB perspective, mm -hmm. this wasn't, you weren't adding on biopsies just for, it was all people that were getting standard of care biopsies from the get, from the job. Correct. Correct. But you have to discuss with them the fact that you're going to take extra tissue. So in addition of what's going to go to pathology, you're going to take extra tissue. I usually mention two to three extra cores and then we also take, you know, when indicated, you know, from the background, um, normal liver. And so that needs to be discussed um, in the IRB because there's theoretically an extra risk for bleeding. And yeah. so the whole IRB process actually worked out really well because there was already an IRB. Um, there was an IRB through our GI colleagues, and we basically just added language to allow us to, to add on, you know, standard of care biopsies. Uh, onto that in IR. And so it was much less painful than creating an IRB proposal from scratch. Yeah, totally. So, you know, so then what would you say? So was the, was the study, it, was it just kind of a proof of concept study that you create the tumor tumoroids or did you do tests on them or what happened after you had, had created the tumoroids? Yeah. So both both aspects. So okay. concept that we can do it. And then second, actually doing experiments on them. So I think what was demonstrated in the SIO abstract was that we established proof of concepts. So actually, you know, this has actually been shown before. Um, there's other groups, mainly in, in Europe. Um, there's actually, there's two papers out describing that you're able to, that they were able to generate 
these HTC tumoroids, but yeah. no one's done any experiments simulating liver-directed therapy on them. And so the, the process is a little bit challenging because, and then we, what I'll say is that, you know, we, we work very closely with one of the cores here in the GI section. A core is basically a research sort of entity that does certain work for, okay. for a collaborator. And so we've been working closely with them and they, they basically have been instrumental in generating these. And so we give them the tissue. My colleague, Naomi, she basically cultures them under very specialized conditions uh -huh. to try to get these tumoroids to kind of come out and then grow. It's not always successful. And so preliminarily less than half the patients that you get tumor tissue on will develop a tumoroid. Really? Uh, and a lot of that is based off usually like the, the biology of the tumor. Yeah. So, yeah, go I, on. So like, no, I mean, so one, from time to get tissue to the time that you have, you know, a functional tumor that you can do tests on, what's that time frame? Usually about six weeks, I would say. Really? That's okay. what mine is. Yeah. Uh, and then you might not know this, and this is totally fine. You know, you were mentioning, you know, earlier about bad biology, right? Mm -hmm. And just, you know, tumor gets out of control it's, and whatever else. So do you have any sense that people that have more aggressive tumors, like that tissue is better to make a tumoroid versus a less aggressive tumor or am I thinking about this the wrong way or does it not? No, matter? you are. You're thinking about it totally correct. And that's a great question and observation. So you're right. Usually the patients with either moderately differentiated or poorly differentiated are more likely to generate a tumoroid. Interesting. Um, and that's also based off what's been published already by those European groups. Okay. Um, and we've been seeing that preliminarily um, in our lab, although Tentatively, we've gotten one to grow from a more well-differentiated one, but we still have to characterize that fully. So it's it's a downside in that you're not capturing, you know, some of those more, you know, indolent HCCs, but uh -huh. you could argue that, you know, the ones that you need to do the the, the investigations on um, are the bad ones anyway. Yeah, the non-responders, right? Yeah, exactly. What is it about the non-responders? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there's, and, and and I'd love to hear your thought about this, but I'll just kind of preface the question is like, well, I guess I'll just ask you, I mean, like next steps, especially with these non-responders, non I mean, you could think about all sorts of things, like what's their tumor mm -hmm. microenvironment, what's their oxygenation mm -hmm. levels, you know, all these other kinds of questions that people have asked in cancer. Is that where you guys are going next with this? Uh, is you're kind of looking at it? Yeah, so I think one of the things we're looking at, we're doing a lot of um, genetic sequencing on okay. the tumoroid, both looking at specific mutations that we see in the tumoroid, but also gene expression levels and trying to see if certain genes are either up or down regulated and whether these correlate with uh, response uh, to Y90 in vitro. And also seeing whether there's any correlation to how they're doing clinically. It's a little bit of a challenge because not every patient, one, not every patient will grow a tumoroid. And second, yeah. not every patient will undergo 
wine 90, but we've actually made some very pretty interesting observations so far that I'm hoping to hopefully submit to an upcoming meeting. Uh, <laughs> actually, yes. Yeah. So, well, I mean, are, are you able, are you able to share? It's fine if you're not, are you able to share it all kind of what you, what you're looking forward to for SIO 2024 or submitting for that? Um, I, it's still a little bit preliminary. Sure. Um, got you. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I won't put you on. That's totally fine. Basically you have to, I like to replicate things before coming out with. Yeah. Yeah. Tape. No, I got you. <laughs> well, like, listen, congratulations on, you know, you. what you're doing in the project. I mean, I just in the time that I talked to you the last, you know, 20, 25 minutes, I, I, I've, I've learned a lot about this and, and I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about it before. And even me, you know, in my simple mind can, can see the potential applications for this. And so I just really congratulate you and, and thankful for you and for your efforts, because I think this is the kind of stuff, like you said earlier, is really the things understanding mechanisms at the end of the day is the stuff mm -hmm. that really pushes these oncologic treatments forward. And yeah. so uh, appreciate and your, I think, Thank you. I think also elevates our fields kind of puts us on the same level as, you know, our other oncology colleagues. Yeah, a hundred percent, right? Because it's it's not just, you know, does it work? It does work. And then those questions clinically is does it work compared to standard of care treatment? Then why does it work and how can we maximize it? Yep. And, and what are the what are the problems there, which is exactly where you're starting to delve into. And so um it's just I feel like it's just a really exciting time with all the new, especially around HEC and Y90 with all the new clinical data surrounding dosing and people mm -hmm. um trying to understand that better. And I think if we, you know, People are attacking it from that way and you're attacking it from, you know, we have the therapy. How do we do better in patient selection, especially in our non-responders, right? Yeah, exactly. 100%. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to kind of speak with us. And uh, we're really looking forward to what you guys have next coming out of your lab at SIO 2024, uh, which is going to be in Long Beach this year. And Chris, again, just thanks for taking the time to, to talk about this and for all the great work you're doing and uh, hope to see more from your group. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. That wraps up another episode of IOL Radio. To listen to more conversations on topics of interest to interventional oncologists, please visit the podcast page at iolearning.com.